word, as we unpack the scriptures, as we search for Jesus and, and look to know him more. Help us to be, help us to be in your presence today. Um, anything that gets in the way of that, uh, I, I pray, Lord, that you would just, just take it out of the way. Anything that, that uh, causes our hearts to be hardened, I pray, Lord, that you would uh, make it visible to us and, and help us to uh, repent uh, and be made whole. In Christ's name I pray. Oh, uh, also, Lord, I pray for uh, Carly's uh, grandmother who uh, is in the hospital. And uh, I do not remember the rest of the prayer request. I, I read it on the uh, Facebook page before I had it up. But I pray that you be with uh, with uh, whatever it is that's going on with uh, with Grammy and with uh, Carly um, and, and the rest of the family. Give them strength and give them peace and help them to trust in you. In Christ's name, amen. Oh, so this is the first week of Lent, uh, and it, we're going to talk about it a little bit. It is not my primary focus for today, but we are going to talk about it. Uh, for those of y'all who are not aware, Lent is the 40 days that precedes Easter. It is um, like early, early in church history, people would, uh, they would fast uh, before being baptized as a preparation. And uh, it was really, really common for people to be baptized on Easter, which makes sense. And so the fasting before Easter became like a regular thing in the early church. And eventually uh, it became attached to the 40 days that Christ spent in the desert fasting and praying. And so uh, that's where like the Lent 40 days thing came from. That's the thumbnail sketch. And really the idea is during Lent you're supposed to look at yourself. You're supposed to repent. You're supposed to search your heart. And you're supposed to draw close to Christ and, and, and realize, like, the significance of what he did for us. Like, like the death on the cross, the resurrection, the whole thing. Like, like, we're supposed to bring that to the forefront of our thoughts. We did sort of a version of Lent during Advent where we talked about preparing to celebrate. And um, in this time, we, we prepare, like, like, to mourn for the cross and to celebrate for the resurrection. And so... Um, before we kind of dive into our text, though, I do want to tell a short story. Um, many years ago, after I finished college, I, uh, I finished college with a degree in philosophy, uh, which, I, as you can imagine, when I got out of college, I had, uh, I had the opportunity to reject a bunch of options uh, with my career. The philosophy factory had just opened nearby, and I didn't work there. I, I instead drove down to Texas and uh, uh, moved down there so I could marry Jessica, um, and I looked for jobs that would just be something I could do, you know, like so I could make money so I could get married. And the first job I had was as an exterminator. I'm going to tell you, this is Houston. It is like 110 degrees every day and 110% humidity, and it rains constantly. Um, exterminator is just about the worst job you can have in the city of Houston, okay, other than you know, well, I, anyway, I'm going to get into that. Like, like it, it was awful. There were, it was a gross, miserable job, and I didn't do it for very long. But I remember there was a conversation I had um, with a person I was visiting and talking to. Uh, I was checking their house for, for termites and, and for, for whatever. And, like, while I was there, I'm talking to this lady, and she lived in a mansion. It was a, an honest-to-goodness mansion. And the first time I was there, I was drawing out the house. I was checking the place for termites, and they had termites. The thing I found that really blew me away, she had this pool in her yard. It was a big, huge, beautiful pool. And because she lived sort of in the woods, she didn't like leaves in the pool. And so she put up this giant wall 
with a metal canopy over it to keep the leaves out. I mean, literally, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of construction so that they didn't have to clean leaves out of the pool every day. Um, it was, it, she, this was a very well-off woman, and they had a nice hot tub, and they had all of this stuff going on. And I was talking to her as I looked around. I found that they had a rat problem, and the rats were swimming in her hot tub, uh, which, by the way, if you own a hot tub, that is a thing. They, they like hot water, and they like water, and they do that. And, and, um, but I was talking to her, and we, we got to talking about degrees and college, and, and I said, well, you know, I got, this, I got this philosophy degree, and then I came down here. I had a, actually had a job lined up in Chicago, and I moved down there to marry Jess. And she and I were talking, and, and I, I said, you know, I don't think money is the most important thing in life. Like, money is good. It's nice to have. But, like, they're just important things. Like, there are better things to live for. And this woman who lived in this mansion um, looked at me and said, you're crazy. Money is the most important thing. If you have money, you can do whatever you want. It is the best thing to have in life. And she's an older woman. She lived by herself. She was divorced. She had kids all this, but she lived by herself in this huge house. And I remember the second time I went there, she had to cancel our contract because her son was suing her. And all I could think was, wow, they're fighting over money. And money is the most important thing in the world. Um, we live in a world that will tell you things are important, tell you that this is the way things work. This is common sense. This is what matters. And um, we serve a God that, that sort of puts all that on his head, Right? Um, that says, hey, this isn't all there is. Hey, you're here for more important things than just having a lot of cool stuff. Um, your life has purpose and meaning, but it has a purpose and meaning that the world will consider foolish. And as we dive into the next little section of Mark, we're going to be looking at some, like, so we did the calling of the apostles, right? And now we're going to be looking at, um, like, early responses to Jesus' ministry and how people talked about him. And really, ultimately, it comes down to everybody thought Christ was nuts. They thought he was foolish. They thought he was, was a hot mess. They thought anybody who was going with him was nuts. And we're going to talk about that, and we're going to talk about it as we prepare for Lent, because the life of a Christian, you know, we live in a very Christianized place, right? Like, people just sort of assume there are churches everywhere. You know, some people go to church. Some people do this. Even if you don't go to church, even if you don't follow the Bible or read it or pray or anything, most people consider themselves Christians. Like, like it's sort of an easy thing, but when you really drill down to what it is to follow Christ, it's maybe less sensible than our culture thinks it is. Um, and we're going to explore that today. So we're going to dive in. Um, here's some background real quick. Uh, of course, this is the Gospel of Mark. Mark uh, wrote it down. Peter is actually the guy who did uh, all of the talking. This is Peter's account of the life of Christ, um, and Mark just wrote it down for him. Uh, there's a lot of cool structure stuff, like whoever Mark was, uh, probably John Mark, um, he did some cool stuff, and he uses a lot of interesting literary structure. He works themes through everything, and some of that stuff's going to play in today. Uh, we talked about chiasm a few weeks ago. The literary structure we're going to see today is, is the sandwich. Uh, he is going to start telling a story, stop, tell a different story, and then finish telling the first story. And actually, I wanted to do all of them in bits, but I said we're going to do the whole thing all at once because it is best to eat the sandwich, not deconstruct it, right? <laughs> um, man, I wish somebody would make me a sandwich. Uh, so there are insiders and outsiders in this story. The, one of the things we see in Mark is the insiders are the people who are generally the rejects and the people who don't belong there, right? 
and the outsiders are the people who um, should be near to Christ, should be near to God, but they're not. Um, and that's going to turn up a little bit here. Um, finally, the last thing. Jesus has named his apostles, these guys who are representatives of him. They are going to give their eyewitness accounts for the rest of their lives, right? And they're going to die doing it. They're going to tell what they saw. And this particular collection of verses is going to play into that. And it's going to play into it in a real way because we all have to make certain decisions about what we're going to do with Jesus, right? Like you can pretend all kinds of things. But when you have a discussion about who Jesus is, like, like in history, just the most important person who ever lived. He's impacted the world more than anyone ever you know, even if you're an atheist, he has. Like, like he's changed culture. He's changed how we think, everything. And we have to determine who he is and respond to it. Um, you can ignore him, but that's foolishness. Anyway, so the big idea for where we start, the final thought in the commissioning text that we did last week, dovetails into this part, which is cool. Um, and I didn't notice it. I kept getting annoyed with the way that different... Um, Different texts would, like, lump all this together, and they kept lumping that last verse into the next section. Why would you do that? And here it is, because it dovetails. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Very last of the apostles, right? The last guy who was identified and commissioned as an apostle by Jesus personally. Um, And it's this announcement of betrayal. The section that follows is all betrayal, Everybody with me? Everything that's about to follow is bad. Um, everything that's about to follow is people stabbing him in the back. Um, and so we're going we're gonna to look at that. But be aware, like, these sections are tied together. The eyewitness accounts, the commission, you guys are authorized to be my eyewitnesses, is followed by these are the objections. And if the eyewitnesses bought into the objections, they probably would have mentioned it. Just a heads up. Um, so, second big idea, having done like a half a verse there. Um, there are people who are going to arrive who are going to say Jesus is nuts. Got it? And really, if you think about it, a guy who says he's God, I mean, like, he better have really, really convincing proof, right? Lots of people say they're God and turn out not to be. Um, And in fact, actually, I was helping a young woman with a paper here last week on false messiahs around the time of Christ. And there were a ton of guys who showed up and said, I am him. And you know what happened to all of them? Somebody killed them. They either got their heads cut off, or they got stoned, or they got whatever. Uh, one guy led a group of people, and he was going to capture Jerusalem. And when he showed up at the gates, an army met him and killed all of them, like 30,000 people. And it was like not even a battle because they weren't soldiers. Like, so Christ either has to have a lot of evidence in his favor, or this lunatic thing like makes sense. Let's have a look. This is Mark chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Then Jesus entered a house, and again, a crowd gathered so that he, wa- he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Now, the phrase, his family, is an assumption. It is not actually what the text said. The text says, his people, of his people. Um, it's generally translated as family because at the second half of this, it's going to mention his family. But these might actually just be people he knew who said, oh, this Jesus guy is nuts, and they went to deal with him, and they reached out to his family to come and help. It's not real clear. But these people show up, and they say, well, he's out of his mind. Um, and so there's a little bit of language stuff happening here. 
krateo uh, is one of the words there. It is to exercise power or force over someone or something, to have power over or to control. This word is used a, like, like very intentionally, and the Greek like, puts a lot of weight to it. It is a very explicit text, and it's not really obvious that it is because of the way it's phrased. John does it a little different. The Gospel of John says, they went to seize him, believing that Jesus had gone berserk. The idea is these guys showed up with a straitjacket. They were going to tie him up, they were going to take him home, and they were going to hide him in the basement because he was insane. That is the weight of what is being said here, and the other Gospels support this understanding. And so these guys have showed up. Jesus is there. He's teaching. He's healed people. He's got eyewitnesses that he's healed people. He's done all kinds of stuff. And one of the responses is, this guy's nuts. That's quite an accusation. Right? I, uh, I one time read uh, an essay by a psychiatrist, a clinical psychiatrist, who uh, specialized in that particular, I, I don't know if it's schizophrenia or whatever, but related to people who have delusions that they are divine or that they are, you know, I'm, I am JFK or whatever. And there are, like, different things they do and different things they say and ways they talk and ways they behave. And one of the things that um, this guy came up with was, having read the Gospels and analyzed them as a psychiatrist, was that, like, no matter what you do with it, the guy wasn't nuts, right? just wasn't insane. Um, it's, it's a hard thing to carry. It's a hard thing to deal with. Um, but the truth is, like, the way that Jesus engaged with people, the way that he talked, the way that he thought, the way that he argued – Everything he did not present as a mentally ill person. Um, in addition, in addition, the disciples, the apostles, these guys who followed him, they dealt with him and they said, "Well, you know, I, I doubt they would have gone to their death saying he was crazy, or even hinting that he was crazy, right?" But it's important to understand this because when we really, really, really drill down into the stuff that Christ calls us to do, some of it is over the top, right? Some of it is nuts. There are times when I've been praying about something and I thought, well, this is what I think God wants me to do. And I felt silly doing it because I thought, man, I'm nuts for doing this. I'm every, oh, I have to sit back down because the camera's moved. Like, <laughs> I, uh, and, and think about it. Like, think about how we deal with money, how we deal with pleasure, how we deal with anything. Our culture, like there are times dealing with Christ will involve People looking at us like we're nuts, or even us feeling like maybe we're crazy. Um, but the truth is that it works. Like, the apostles followed Christ, and he healed people. He brought people back from the dead. He himself rose from the dead. Like, it's really hard to look at the guy who can actually perform miracles and say, oh, that guy's crazy. Well, you raise a guy from the dead, well, you're also crazy. I mean... It didn't work, right? Like, Jesus was a very genuine article. And I wanted to touch on that because that's what the text says. Like, the text says, oh, he's out of his mind. And the people who were around him did not buy it. They did not believe it because he didn't act that way. And he performed miracles and stuff like that. Um, there are other people who said that he was possessed by an evil spirit. Um, anybody who's familiar with uh, the argument, right? Like, this is crazy, liar, or Lord, right? Or Lord, liar, lunatic, if you're going to do the, the popular version of it. And the truth is that if Jesus was, like, like Jesus undoubtedly was a man who lived. We undoubtedly have eyewitness accounts about his life. And so he was either crazy, he was a liar, or he was who he said he was. 
And that's what this text basically runs through. And so, like, we're about to encounter. So, like, these people show up. He's surrounded by folks. And we're told that family showed up or the people who were of him showed up to collect him up and tie him up and throw him in the basement or whatever, deal with him like he was crazy. And um, then it stops and it jumps to this other account. And it's the, uh, the scribes, I believe, who showed up and said, are the teachers of the law. And the teachers of the law, so like this is happening, and then suddenly we're in the room with him, surrounded, and he can't eat because there's so many people. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. He is dri- by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So they got a problem. First off, they can't deny that he's casting out demons. Like this is a thing he's doing. And he's performing miracles. He's doing things that are, like, inexplicable. And so either he is who he says he is, or he is demonic, right? Like, because it's got to be something. Like, if something supernatural is happening, and, like, their reasoning is he's doing supernatural stuff, he's not on our team, therefore, he is, you know, he's got to be evil, right? Um, and Jesus engages this idea. I want to touch on one thing real quick. Uh, their phrase, Beelzebul, uh, if you read in the NIV, it's actually uh, Beelzebub, I think is the more popular phrasing, and a lot of times they assume that it's just a mistext. Uh, it is not. Uh, Beelzebul, or Beelzebub, sorry, I hate ancient languages. Um, it, it's a reference to the uh, Syrian god uh, Ekron, and uh, originally would have meant Lord of the Dwelling, Generally, when Jewish people said it, they would say it in a variant. They would pronounce it wrong on purpose, meaning Lord of the Carrion Flies, or more aptly, probably Lord of the Dung Heap. Because what attracts flies? <laughs> the Dung Heap, right? Um, and it's sort of an insult. But what they're saying is Beelzebal, which means uh, Baal the Prince, or Baal's Abode or Dynasty. And I think the Baal's abode is actually like a strong phrase for this because it fits with what Jesus is about to say. So they've showed up and they're saying, he's evil. He casts out demon because he's evil. He's, and mind you, like a little bit of a reminder, we talked about this last week. Well, we'll get to that in a second. I think it's actually in my notes in a minute. Um, so Jesus responds. Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, the house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. And in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. I'm going to pause here. I little italicized that. That was my edition, not the original. First tying him up. That probably sounds a little like the opening line from our sandwich, right? The opening line of the sandwich is his family showed up and they're like, yeah, he's nuts. We're going to tie him up and take him home, right? And now he says, listen, you can't, you can't rob a guy, if you, you know, big strong man, if you don't tie him up first. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Um, Very short version. I'm actually going to dig into this text in a future sermon, but uh, the idea here is to attribute the work of the Holy Spirit to evil, to say evil is good and good is evil is is a thing that is, it breaks you in a way that is unfixable. Got it? More on that another day. Um, So what do we do with this? Well, 
the second use of tying up or binding language, this is a different word than the first time, right? Uh, this one specifically means to tie together. Uh, it's significant, significant for two reasons. In the larger narrative, Jesus tips his hand, like, because there are all these people are showing up, and they're trying to tie up what Jesus is. They're saying, hey, oh, I can't stand up. Dang it, I feel tied. Um, I am limited by the camera angle, so I have to sit. Um, they're trying to, they're trying to tie, like, like, these are examples of people trying to put Jesus into a narrative hole, right? To box him up, to say, oh, well, he was crazy. And in reality, crazy doesn't work. Oh, he's possessed by evil. And Jesus turns around and says, how can an evil person do good things? All I'm doing is defeating evil. Like, how can that possibly be evil? And so part of what he's doing here by saying, unless you tie up a strong man, he's tipping his hand and saying, ain't nobody tying me up. But then he turns around and he says, but if I'm casting out demons, then I'm tying them up. Which, walking into a strong man's house and tying him up, Beelzebub, the phrase that we saw there was... um, Baal's abode or dynasty. Baal was an ancient god that the Israelites kind of had a lot of dalliances with. They would worship Baal on the side. And, and so, like, this is kind of a reference to that. And the idea being that Jesus has showed up. He can tie up whoever he wants because he's in Satan's house and he can do what he wants. He can tie him up because he is bigger, he is stronger, he is more powerful. If you ever find yourself in a place where you feel like nothing will ever get better, where you feel like you are so broken and lost it will never get better, where you feel like you are owned by evil, where you feel like evil people are all around you, understand you serve a God that is stronger than that. And part of what Jesus is saying there is, number one, I can't be tied up. You can call me crazy, but it won't fit. You can call me evil, but it won't fit. You can do this, you can do that, but none of that stuff is going to negate what I'm doing. In turn, I can tie up anything. I am in charge. I have this authority. Um, Why does that matter? Why is that a big deal? Because we talked about this last week. When the disciples were sent out, they were told, go out, preach the gospel, tell everybody what you saw, and cast out demons. Ancient Jews believed that when the Messiah, when the Christ, when the Son of God showed up, like, or they didn't believe it was the Son of God at that point, when, when God's deliverer showed up, that demons would be bound, and that would be one of the big signs. And mind you, they took this stuff seriously. Uh, in 130 AD, there was a Simon Bar Kokhba, was a Jewish fellow who led a rebellion, and he managed to drive the Romans out of Israel for like a month. And then the Romans showed up and killed them all and destroyed the temple and illegalized the Jewish faith in that part of the world and exported everyone all over the world and wiped out Israel as it was known. But Simon Bar Kokhba was like this general, and he's hanging out with the priests, and one day he says, hey, I'm the Messiah. And they're like, oh, wow, we're really committed to you at this point because you basically led a rebellion, and we're all going to die if you're not telling the truth. And so they broke out the test, and they started applying the test to him. And when he couldn't pass them, they killed him. And so for them to look at Jesus and say, oh, he's casting out demons, he's crossed the line. Like, he fits the pattern. And Jesus is saying... I'm in charge. I am the Messiah. I can cast out demons. I can tie up the strong man. Saying, I'm the Messiah. Like, this is a test. And the guys who should know better are so stuck in their heads. Have you ever met somebody like that who couldn't see the truth because they were so stuck? Um, they were so, like, set. I, I, uh, I quit drinking 18 years ago last week. That's, like, forever. 
Um, and I remember there was a stretch of time where you could not tell me a darn thing. It was everybody else's fault that I was drunk all the time. Everybody else, not my fault. And I would lie and I would hide about it. More than anything else, I lied to myself because I was broken. I had convinced myself that a lie was true. And these teachers of the law are in the same boat. They're looking at him and they're like, he's casting out demons. This is a sign of the Messiah, but he can't be the Messiah because he's not one of us. And they never stopped and said, hey, maybe we're the bad guys. Right? Maybe we're the baddies. Maybe we're the guys who's all screwed up. Like, maybe we've dropped the ball. I said that just for Mark. Um, and so, like, the big thing, they're saying, you're possessed by the devil. Like, you're clearly doing this. And Jesus is saying, listen, if I'm a liar, if I am evil, then, like, what I'm doing doesn't make sense. Right? Like, why would it? Everything he teaches, everything he said, everything he's done points in the other direction. Um, Finally, the last group, and this is where the family thing comes from in the first part, um, is ownership. There are folks who are going to misconstrue him. And again, each of these is an example of something tying up or trying to limit what Christ is. They try to limit his ministry by saying he's crazy. Try to limit his ministry by saying he's possessed by the devil. They try to limit his ministry by saying he belongs to us. Um, They didn't understand uh, watch this. This is 31 and 32. Then Jesus' Jesus's mother and brothers arrive, standing outside, because they can't get in because there's so many people there they can't even eat, right? Like they're packed full. They didn't think to climb up on the roof and cut a hole and drop in, I guess. But um, So the crowd around him is there. Uh, standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. And a crowd sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. A couple of things that are happening here, okay? This is another spot where the language hides, like, a huge truth. And if you uh, just learn ancient Greek, it'll become so much easier. Uh, The uh, zetain, and actually zeteo is the root, and that's the one I have up there, the first. The Greek word is zeteo. Zetain is the one that's used here. It's just the tense. That's it, right? Like the tense. Anyway, I don't read Greek. Uh, The word means to desire to have or experience something with the probable implications of making an attempt to realize one's desire, to desire um, or to want to. Like, and it sounds like a weird, well, what does that matter? Because his family showed up, and what are they doing? There's the teo, meaning they are looking for him. Mark uses this word ten times, ten times in his shortest gospel every time it's a negative every single time and in this instance as in most instances it is related to somebody who is trying to interfere or obstruct what jesus is doing they showed up whether they think he's crazy or not they're trying to get to him they're looking for him trying to get to him trying to pull him out or trying to get in the way and like like the implication in mark's writing the implication in the text is Whatever he's doing, it's not the right thing, and we need to be a part of it. Like, we need to get in the way. I'm not saying this because Mary and her sons and whatever, like, that they're all, you know, sinful. But they've seen him. Anybody ever look at your kid and think, there is no way you're going to accomplish this, and then they prove you wrong? Or Titus told me something the other day, and I thought for sure he was lying to me. I was convinced. Oh, my goodness. I was mad, too. And I woke him up early in the morning, and I was like, all right, Titus, tell me the truth. Like, you're lying to me. He's like, no, I'm not lying. So I went to the school to talk to the person that he told me about, 
And I waited around, and I said, all right, it's your last chance. You need to kind of come clean, because if I find out, I'm like, no, I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you the truth. And guess what? He was telling the truth, and I kind of looked like a jerk. <laughs> Sometimes we just guess wrong. And I think his family looked at him at this point and said, well, I don't know what's going on, but this is a problem. We're hearing stuff, and that stuff's making us nervous. Let's go get him. They took ownership of them. And there are times we do this with Christ. And I'm, this is an exact fit, but I do think, it, um, I do think the concept is there. Um, there are times we look at Jesus and we say, no, that's my Jesus. You've got to do it this way. Uh, missionaries is a big thing with uh, missionaries once upon a time. It's no longer the case for, uh, like, it's a very, they emphasize it when they teach missionaries, don't do this. But, like, it was a big thing where people would make, make converts in, like, third world countries or whatever, like, wear suits. You know, like, hey, you can't dress like you used to. you got to dress like us. And, like, in reality, wearing a suit has very little to do with following Jesus, right? Learning to sing Wesley's hymns, almost not on the radar, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> um, going to potlucks regularly, I, it, it's in the message, but not probably any of the other translations. Like, there are ways that we try to turn Jesus into our Jesus, and we say, God can't fix that. God can't tolerate that. God can't be this way. And in reality, sometimes we make Jesus into our Jesus instead of the Jesus. I, uh, I've done this at different times in my life, where I show up to church on Sunday, and it's just enough. That's, that's my faith. Right? Or when I was drinking all the time and I would say, well, but I'm still forgiven because Christ forgives anything I do. And I use it as an excuse to continue sinning, right? That's my Jesus, not, not the real Jesus. In reality, Christ calls us to radical, crazy, huge commitment. He pours out his blood for us so that we can be bought, raised from the dead, and live for him and know him and be changed constantly into something better and new. That's what the gospel is about. That's what Christ came for. That's how we're supposed to live. As we celebrate Lent, like as we look at our lives, this is the time we're supposed to stop and look at ourselves and say, I, am I doing it? Where am I at? What do I need to repent of? What do I need to clean up? If Christ died for me this month, would I be ready to like accept it? Would I be ready to submit to it? Would I understand what it is? Or am I living as though Christ died for me? I'm not saying that to guilt you at all. I'm saying that because, like, this is the thing that we have to do constantly. We constantly have to look at ourselves and say, where am I at? Where's my heart? Otherwise, we end up like the teacher, right? The teachers here are like, oh, yeah, he fits the test, but I don't like him. Right? (laughs) Um, The last thing we find, Jesus kind of declares himself Lord. Like, he declares his priority. This is a dig into thing. I'm just going to brush over it quick. I'm sorry, guys. Um, who are my mothers and brothers? This is a loaded thing, too. This is about the harshest thing I have ever seen in the scriptures, and I've seen some awful sermons about it, right? He says, who are my mothers and brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Wow. You say that to your mom, right? And there are people who take that and like, oh, my gosh, you just said something horrible. What a terrible, you know. No, what he's saying is, like, if you want to be with me, if you want to be on my team, you don't get to get in the way. You get to come with me. You get to sign up. You get to walk with me. If you want to be my family, you follow me. 
you do God's will. You live this way. You become like me. So last, I want to touch on last like commentary bit I'm going to do here. Um, by linking this to the Apostles' Commissioning, I think we're reminded that these witnesses, these guys, you, these 11 guys, and then more after that, like the Become Apostles, like these guys, they're going to testify to something like literally whether he was crazy, whether he did miracles, whether he rose from the dead, whether he was evil underneath it all. Whether he was this, whether he was that. Like, they're going to testify about this stuff. They're going to be eyewitnesses and going forward. I think Mark puts them together so that we can look and say, when the eyewitnesses stuff is all said and done, he is who he is. And he's something to be, like, taken seriously. Something to be rejoiced over. Something to, to follow and to, like, become a part of. Um, I, uh, I find, uh, any of y'all ever watch the videos from Yellowstone? Not Yellowstone, the crappy TV, or the silly TV show. Sorry, I apologize. The 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 TV show. I mean Yellowstone, the place, right? Like it is. It's like watching. I don't watch baseball. I don't watch football. I watch tourists getting run over by bison, <laughs> right? Like <laughs> he's on the ten, snacks him. You know, like it's yeah, you know. Uh, or these guys trying to feed baby bears, and you're like ah ah, you know. In reality, the bison might be still enough for you to pet it for a little while, right? And as long as you're making the bison happy, you can do all kinds of stuff. Bears, there's actually, I talked about this a bunch of times years ago. There's a great, like, documentary about a guy who lived with bears six months a year. Went up and lived amongst the bears. And guess what happened? They ate him. <laughs> but he did it for years. And in reality, Christ, Christ is God. Like, Lewis talks about, C.S. Lewis talks about um, Aslan, and he says, oh, you know, people say, well, is he safe? No, he's a lion. Of course he's not safe, but he's good. Christ is anything but safe. And we oftentimes put him on a leash and assume my Jesus is safe. Oh, Jesus said that thing about eyes and hands, like, there's a lot to that teaching, don't me, don't hear me telling you to cut your hands off. Um, you know, we see that teaching. We say, oh, well, that's just kind of a crazy bit. We'll just jump right over that. All oh, that part about not looking at women lustfully, well, he probably just didn't understand how it is for me. Like, we can look at him like he's crazy. We can look at him like he was wrong sometimes. We can look at those things. But in reality, when we're doing that, we're treating the bear like it's not dangerous. And we're treating the lion like it's a kitty cat that we can play with. And in reality, it's neither of those things. Christ is dangerous. But Christ is on our side. And as we prepare for Easter, as we walk through Lent, as we do this season, part of what we're called to do is take seriously the fact that Jesus was the real deal. He wasn't crazy. He wasn't a liar. He wasn't any of those things. He was the Son of God. He was someone who calls us to commit ourselves to craziness, to foolishness. To stuff the world will look at and say, what is wrong with you? The mission of Jesus um, we commit to must be real. Like, it can't just be this thing. It can't be a game we play. It can't be a shirt we put on every Sunday and put in the closet when we're done. It has to be a thing that changes us through and through. And there are lots of ways that happen. It happens through our fellowship. It happens through our prayer life. It happens through accountability. Like, there are a couple of guys I started spending time with, like, because I'm 
like trying to help them grow. And the more I talk to them, the more I'm like, oh, wow, I got to do better in this part of my life. I love doing premarital counseling and marriage counseling because it generally makes me a better husband because I look at other people and I'm like, oh, wow, <laughs> I'm not doing that right now. I need to get better because that's real. Like being Christ to my wife is real. Being Christ to my brothers is real. And this has to be a thing that we live for, not a thing that we play with. In the days leading up to Easter, we're going to be looking at a bunch of stuff related to this. We're going to dig into some of these texts a little bit. We're going to jump into other areas. Um, But we're called to prepare ourselves and to look at the mission we have in front of us. My challenge for you this week, we're going to have a business meeting. We're going to have a lunch in. We're going to have all of these things, and it's going to be great. Um, My challenge for you is to find Jesus in the room when you do it. Find Jesus in the seat next to you. Find Jesus, like, in your, you know, brothers and sisters in Christ. Find Jesus in your time of prayer, in the quiet time in the morning when you sit and talk to him, in the time when you do something that's not fun but you know is service and you know is loving him. Um, my challenge for you is to, is to find Christ in the next few weeks, like, as we prepare to celebrate his buying us with his blood. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would pray that you'd be with us this morning. I pray that you would be with us as we go out into the world, as we go out and, and act as your representatives, act as your people, act as you to the lost. Help us to be people who pursue you and are hungry to know you and desire to grow spiritually. Help us to bear fruit in keeping with our salvation as we grow more loving and more peaceful and more patient, more kind, and, and as we become like you. I pray for your grace and your spirit to bring us through that. In Christ's name, amen.